I think everybody on the planet has some work that they're supposed to do. It doesn't mean you always do it, but there's some work that you're supposed to do. And when you are doing it, you get grace. You get that light, you know? You know how like when someone you love smiles at you and you smile back and you feel that little current in your heart? That's the light. In October of 2003, Sandra Cisneros joined us for an evening 20 years after the publication of her luminous work, The House on Mango Street. Now we have the chance to listen again 40 years after that seminal book first came into our lives. More than anything, Cisneros is a writer of deep vulnerability. In this recording, you will hear her striking honesty with herself and with the audience answering the questions she had always wished to be asked. As a pioneering Chicana writer and an inspiration to many, Cisneros reminds us always, quote, we do this because the world we live in is a house on fire and the people we love are burning. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the executive director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. You're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from 36 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Cisneros defies all categories of writer. She is a poet, novelist, short story writer, essayist, and a performing artist. Writing in both English and Spanish, Cisneros is quoted as saying she is grateful to have, quote, twice as many words to pick from, two ways of looking at the world. Following the reading, Cisneros joined former Sal executive director Margaret Rankin for a conversation where she discussed theater performance, bilingual writing, and the complexity of the idea of a literary canon. Who gets included? How does it matter to our writing communities? And how do we find each other? This is Sal on Air. Oh my God. If my father, well my father is here tonight, if my mother could only be here. My father's here in spirit. He's been traveling with me uh, since he passed away, but especially on this book tour, which is uh, for his book. He never understood what it was I did. He just wanted me to get married. <laughs> uh, my father, he, you know, pobrecito, he just wanted me to stop sleeping on the floor, como un hippie, like a hippie. You know, if I could only get a bed and like bookshelves and health insurance and a job that I didn't stop quitting every six months and moving around. And I, I was this kind of migrant uh, professor for a while. And my father would always introduce me as um, a teacher, which is not bad. But I was a professor at that point, And I was teaching at prestigious universities. So I'd get very upset. And I'm happy to say that um, my very egotistical prayer came true. And that was that my father lived long enough to understand uh, what I do, because I was his favorite child. And I, it was so important for me that he understood what I did, even though he, he wasn't a reader, and uh, he never read my works, except for one book. Uh, he literally was strapped to uh, some machines, getting his blood cleaned out and getting dialysis, and he had nothing to do when he read House on Manga Street. And he, I remember he told me this with Denise Chavez sitting next to me at a restaurant. He said, Mija, that's all very well and good, but why don't you write something for adults? <laughs> I thought, oh my God, if he only knew. But um, anyway, my father lived long enough uh, to fulfill my very egotistical dream, which was that he could understand uh, what I do in the way that he could understand it. And that was, uh, I got a, a MacArthur grant, which he didn't know what that was, but he did know what $255,000 was. <laughs> and uh, you know, it was, one, it was the amount of that money and the fact that Carlos Fuentes mentioned it uh, on uh, Univision, on one of the Spanish-speaking stations, and my father saw that. And he finally got it. And uh, you know, he was at the end of his life. He was about 71 or 70, something like that, when, when I won my award. And he did the most extraordinary thing. He told me, he said, Mija, don't get married. He'll just take your centavitos away from you. <laughs> uh, that's true. 
so I, I share this with you for those of you whose fathers want you to get married. Uh, you know, uh, sometimes it's just that they want to make sure that you're not going to be destitute and that you're not going to be crying. Because he did see me go through those crying jags. In fact, that's one of the questions one of the friends asked me about crying, you know. When have I had a, lot, a good cry? But we'll get to that. Tonight, I want to do something that I've never done. It's a little scary, I want you to know. Uh, it's like walking a tightrope without a net. And uh, generally, um, when you see interviews or you see me perform, uh, you get the author with capital A, you know, Sandra Cisneros. And I'm so tired of her. <laughs> you know, she just talks and talks and she always says the right thing. And, you know, I'm just sick of her. So I thought, why doesn't she get to interview me, Sandra, the woman? So I thought I would interview myself. Yeah. You better not applaud. What if this gets boring, you know? But at any rate, we'll see. I hope it doesn't get boring because you paid a lot of money to be here. I'm very concerned that you have a good time. But more than that, that this hour you spend with me, that your life is changed. Because we don't have a lot of time. And I think that when we gather people together, we should be affected very, very deeply. Our lives should be changed. We shouldn't waste our time with art that isn't going to change our life. That's, that's my personal view. But anyway, I thought I would interview myself. And the thing is, um, you know, I, I always think of when people say that they love me, I know they're not really, they don't mean me. They mean this. And, and there's a difference because, you know, I used to run a, a reading series like this one where we would bring writers out and sometimes I had to go pick them up at the airport or take them to their hotel or have lunch with them or take care of them and I was always shocked as a young writer when I would meet these famous writers and they were very different from their books. I figured that out. I, like, I couldn't understand when I was in school at Iowa why these fabulous poets were such sad human beings. Well, <laughs> They could never control their lower chakras, you know? What was wrong with them? <laughs> you know, they were just very desperate and pitiful and frightened, and, and they were actually very human. But what I didn't understand at that age is that when you get the book, you get the, the final polished copy. But when you get the writer, you get the rough draft. <laughs> so um, I thought the author should interview the rough draft. <laughs> so this is a little bit scary. Okay. Um, I have to take off my glasses, I'm afraid, because my vision has changed so much now that I'm getting older. Okay. Um, what have I lost as an author and what have I gained? Oh, I should ask mine. The author asked, what have you lost as an author and what have you gained? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. Because um, one of the things that I've lost is that um, in my hometown in San Antonio, I can't go to readings anymore. Uh, I don't go to art events. I especially can't go to anything that has lots of writers, like a, a book festival or a conference on Chicana writing or things like that. And why? Well, that's because if it's, the program is very long and I only want to go to a portion of it, like an hour instead of four or five, you know, if I get up and leave, everyone says, oh, did you see Sandra Cisneros? She was here and she left right before your reading. Oh, <laughs> that's terrible. And she didn't buy my book. Did she buy your book? Yeah. So you never had this opportunity to just go in there and be by yourself. You know, I, recently I couldn't go hear a friend of mine who's a, a performance artist because she was on a program that was, you know, singers and other poets. It just went on and on and on. And I'm getting older now. I can't do six-hour, you know, Woodstock readings. I'm sorry. You know. I'm too tired of that. And, you know, so that's one of the things that I've lost, that um, in my own hometown there isn't that kind of anonymity that I could step in somewhere. I don't like going to bookstores either because people talk to you. You know, and that sounds like a bad thing, but, uh, or it doesn't sound like a bad thing to you. But to me, it does. Imagine, like, if everywhere you went, somebody wanted to talk to you. 
well, that's all right when you want to talk, but what if you don't want to talk? So I think that that kind of silence, my, my right to be silent has been re removed. On the other hand, there are some things that I've gained, uh, and that is when I speak, people listen. <laughs> oh, that's good. Like, what if you want to go to, uh, say, the city council meeting and speak up about some terrible atrocity? Uh, your quote will be quoted in the paper the next day. You know? That's good and bad. You know, because what if you say something silly? You know, good and bad, good and bad. I think all of these have good and bad. Uh, what questions don't people ask you? What don't they know about you? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. People don't know that I'm shy. No. Yes, it's true, I am. I'm actually very shy. But how could you be up here talking to all these people? You're kind of a ham. Well, yes, I am, but I think writers in real life are introverts. I think that this whole thing, like coming out and speaking and doing the book tours and signing, that's, that has nothing to do with being a writer. It's the opposite of being a writer. This is showbiz. And some writers are good at it, and some are not. But I think deep down inside, most writers would tell you, even the extroverted ones, that they're very, very shy. If they weren't shy, why didn't they take up flamenco dancing or, you know? Why weren't they opera singers? They turned out to be writers precisely because, you know, in my case, I was um, that little girl in the class who, whose name you don't know, who never speaks, who doesn't have any friends, who during recess just stands by herself and doesn't talk to anybody. You know that girl? And teacher, when teacher has to call her and she kind of sits like this, that was me. So, and some part of me still is there. I think the speaking out loud is kind of a privilege. It's something that I don't take for granted because I grew up with six brothers, mother, father, and te several televisions and radios all going on <laughs> at the same time. So at home, I wasn't shy. At home, I was the clown. Uh, my brother, my favorite brother Kiki and I were the funny ones of the family. And we learned that if we spoke very quickly and if we were funny, we would get attention. You know? so, so that was at home. But at school, um, I, went to, I went to schools in neighborhoods. Uh, I, I can't even give you one neighborhood. We moved so much. And I always went to school in neighborhoods where we were like the poor kids. Maybe there was a middle class in my uh, school that was fleeing us. And then there was us. You know? So when you're kind of like treated like the vermin that is coming into a neighborhood, that attitude, your teachers have that attitude towards you too. You know that. And uh, as a little girl, because I was not talkative in public, because I was very shy and very quiet, I didn't speak up. You know, I was uh, the kind of person that kept things uh, to myself until I got home. And I think actually that was a good thing because if you're the popular one, who wants to write? You know, if you're having a good time, if you're the, the class clown, if you're the one that gets called on, how can you observe things? And I was busy, uh, not out of choice, being the one that was observing what was going on around me and writing about it in secret. But actually, what I really want to talk about is something never, someone no one asked me about. And what could that be? Well, I'll tell you. I want to talk about love. Well, that's very good, because that's basically what you write about. It's always what I write about. And what have you learned about love? What do you wish your mama had told you? You know, my mama never told me anything. Um, I, think, I think one of the great things for Latina women about love is that um, you only have to look to J-Lo so I, you can see that this is true. Uh, you know, I want to talk about J-Lo too. You know, it's that we fall in love so deeply, you know, we want to get married with every person we fall in love with, you know? What is it that J-Lo, you know? You only have to look at J-Lo and see how Catholic she is. And, you know, I wish that our mothers had told us that we were going to fall in love a lot of times, and probably the first half dozen times for the wrong reasons, you know? 
I wish that they had told us that we would fall in love with the men we wanted to become, you know, that that didn't mean we had to marry them. I, I wish that they had told us that, um, you know, that it was all right to be in love with your body, that you love so much, you love with your whole body and your heart and soul. And there's nothing wrong with that, that that's very normal. I wish we would talk to young teenagers and young middle school girls about love and, you know, uh, not make them feel bad or guilty or frightened about their body wanted to be included in love. Um, I wish we talked about these things with young women before they got pregnant, you know, not after. I think it's an incredible thing in our society that we have just rampant teenage pregnancies and we don't discuss these things until afterwards when they know more about it than we do. You know, you know I, I'm, I, I wish that my mother had told me that, you know, um, well, my mom was not the one that could tell me these things because I don't think my mother ever had a great love in her life, you know. I think that um, she got married very young, and maybe her marriage was a model for me not to get married. You know, uh, I think I think I just told her this recently, and she was a little shocked. But my mother's marriage was kind of um, like one of those roadside disasters you see, you know, those crashes on the side of the road. It doesn't mean that my mother and father weren't great as parents; they were very good as parents but they were not suited for each other at all as husband and wife. And that created such a terror in me when I would see my mother as a little girl, and you know when your mother's unhappy, you know, that I thought, oh, you know, if I marry, it has to be forever, and I want it to be with someone that, is, that I can have faith will stay with me for the rest of my life. That's what I thought. And unfortunately or unfortunately, maybe fortunately, uh, I would always fall in love with people in my life who either didn't love me or, I, or vice versa. The ones who loved me, I didn't love them. I think that that was my destino, to tell you the truth. I think we really do have destinos. And if I had been married or if I'd had children or led that kind of romantic life that we think we want as young women, I don't think I would have written all the books that I've written. No, I know I would not have written all the books I've written. You know, because I've, I'm the kind of person that when I'm in love with somebody, I just want to take care of that person. You know, I mean, is that a female thing, do you suppose? You know, I don't see men doing that, but I, I you know, are you thirsty? I'm thirsty, how are you? You know, men don't do that. It's like suddenly you have another body that you have to worry about, you know? You have to keep it clean. You have to feed it. The toenails and the fingernails are constant worry, you know? There's just so much to think about. I'm sure it's like that for if you're a mom. I don't know, I've never been a mom, but it's probably the same thing, except it gets transferred to your object of your desire. And I think I, I, I would not have written the books. I would have been too consumed in trying to make my partner happy. You know, things like, um, I probably would have learned how to cook. <laughs> I would have made the bed every day. I would have been very concerned that the house was very clean. You know. And I probably would have had children, you know? But the, the men I wanted, and this is a, a curious thing, the men I wanted to have children with, uh, fortunately, they were busy saving the world. So they were not uh, reliable fathers. And I wanted someone who was gonna be able to stick around, especially since I didn't have any money. If you recall, I was sleeping on the floor on mattresses. And I didn't want a child to have to live with that kind of poverty. So I think one of the things, you know, I still feel like I'm confused and I'm quite baffled by this thing called love. And I think all my books and writing, when you really come right down to it, it's all about love. I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. I, I don't think we figure it out in one lifetime. Maybe we figure it out in several lifetimes. But um, I don't think my mother could have told me all the things that she told me. I'm so glad I was born in the 50s so that I could have had that wild, wicked ways in the 60s and 70s when we were able to have sex without fear of getting killed. 
you know? And there was actually a time when you could have sex and it was just a joyous time. I also think it was kind of careless. You know, there were some things that were kind of cochina about that time. But, you know, it was still a wonderful time. I think it was an exciting time to, to be having lovers and to have lots of lovers, you know? That's what I would tell young women, have lots of lovers. But don't be a cochina, you know? There's a difference. There's a difference. A cochina means pig. Pig. And I think one of the things that, was, that I regret about those times is like when you, when you loved someone, the question was, you know, if you would bed them or not, you'd say, why not? Now it's like, why? <laughs> why? You know? you know, it was a lot like picking up candy on the, on the floor of the movie theater and putting it in your mouth. Ooh, cochina. You know, so I wish, I wish, I wish for young women that they would have that kind, we don't, however, have that kind of freedom. Even if you have one boyfriend, you know, you still get the risk of, of dying during this time. So it's a horrible time to be living with, with the plague. But on the other hand, maybe one of the things that I've learned that's good is to become friends with someone, to get to know someone, and not go through these pasiones, these passions where you think you're in love, and then you find out 25 years later you were in love all by yourself. You know, that ever happened to you? That happens to me a lot, you know? And, and you know, I have this new boyfriend. He's younger than me. Uh, men my age, usually, they're not available or they're really burnt out from the wars. They're like cinder, you know? Uh, so I have to date younger men. But now I have a partner. And the thing about younger men, they, they come from different times, you know? They're, they're not like us. And, and they go slower. They force you to become their friends. They force you to date them for months, you know? <laughs> Very slow. And you know, for me, that was good. That was good, because then I couldn't imagine that I was in love. I got to know someone as a friend and to become really good friends with them and get to know them. And, and, and for this part, you know, to, and this part to meet later. And I think that's something that I would tell young women, you know? But you can't tell them, just like no one could tell you. You're going to have to go through a lot of heartache. I am sorry to tell you. And your 20s are going to be the most difficult decade. I, I say that because women want to please everybody in their 20s, no? You know, like their parents, and they're trying to please society, and they're trying to be a good girl. And what is a good girl? We, we don't know. No one's ever told it to us to define it for ourselves. Uh, I feel like the 20s are like the geisha years. Everybody's a geisha girl, trying to serve tea and smile and be nice. That's a horrible time. But you don't have to worry. You don't have to worry because it only lasts 10 years. It goes by very fast. And uh, by, if you don't uh, commit suicide and if you make it to 30, you'll start realizing the clock is ticking and you have not pleased the most important person, which is you. So, you know, the 30s are very exciting. I wish my mother had told me that. I don't think she knew it. 30s are wonderful years. The 40s, uh, I, I, I like the 40s too. I, I think something happened in the 40s that was very scary for me. I, I suddenly realized I had all these people listening to my most private thoughts. And not only were they listening, they were being guided by my most private thoughts. That's a great responsibility. So when I turned 40, I asked I looked up to God and I said, you're going to have to send me some wisdom because I don't have any. You know, I'm just one person and people want me to be, you know, the author, not me, you know, the person. So I asked for, um, I asked in my 40s for spiritual growth. That was what I was putting out there in the universe as my intent for the next decade, spiritual growth. That's how you do it. You put it out there. And, and it'll come. But what I didn't realize was that um, if you ask for spiritual growth, you're going to get it. <laughs> and spiritual growth does not come, you know, like with a wand. Uh, it comes through a lot of pain. Uh, that's the only way you're able to move from being in one place to the next. And so the 40s for me were this as if I had 
asked for the trials of Job, if I'd asked for hurricanes and earthquakes and uh, just terrorists all around me. It was a most incredible decade. It's winding down now. I think I had enough spiritual growth. That's enough. Oh, thanks. And you know, I've learned a lot, and I, I still feel like I'm learning. Now I'm in a different place where I'm living with a man. Yes, I'm living with a man. And I think it's good for me to be in this place now at this time in my life. I'm learning what that's like, a kind of a calmness instead of the sparklers you know, and, the, and the fireworks. Uh, uh, the blessings of very small things. Um, and I can't say I know a lot about it. I've only been living with a man for a very short time. Here's a question I have. Oh, here's a question I have. What don't you like about men? <laughs> well, I've been waiting for somebody to ask me about that. I don't like about men that they cannot talk about their feelings. They could never come up here and do this interview. Another thing I don't like about them is they don't wash their hands after they've gone to the bathroom. You know? <laughs> it's true. Listen, listen, and, see if, and listen and hear if you hear the water. You won't. They don't wash their hands and they go to the bathroom. Yes. And young women, they do not floss their teeth. Yes. Horrible things, horrible things. What do you like about men? Well, I like that they're funny. I really like that they're uh, very physical and, and light, and, and they're fun to be with. I, I don't like being in a room with just men, because when they get all together, they're, they're groseros, you know? <laughs> they're groseros, they're rude and vulgar. But if you have them mixed up with women, they're lots of fun. And, I like their joy. I really enjoy men. I like that they don't think about how they look, you know? I like that they grab the milk out of the carton and drink it, you know? I like that. It's just charming to me. And there's just so many things about men that I enjoy. And uh, I also feel kind of sorry for them, pobrecitos, you know? Because they don't know their own truths, you know? They don't examine things in depth. And they only have women to talk to. So I feel sorry for them about that. What don't you like about women? Well, you know what? I don't go to any women-only events anymore because the women are too politically correct. You know, they take 20 or 25 minutes thanking everybody. So the program already there is very boring. And um, I just feel like they take things too seriously. They need to lighten up, you know? So I don't like that about women, that everything's like big drama. It's so serious. They go on and on and on. What do you like about women? Oh, I love that when you're with women, you can touch their earrings. And you can say, oh, I like that. I like that they don't think that's silly, you know, that they, you can touch their hair and look at their shoes. And, uh, you know, you can say, you want a little bit? And they'll take it from your fork and, you know. <laughs> I like that about women. You know, they're, they're very charming. Um, I think women, you know, I could call them at any time and talk and talk and talk with them and, and they will listen to you, you know, in a way that men don't. Women will listen to you. And that's just an, that's the most extraordinary gift anybody could give you, I think, especially if you're a talker or a writer. No? Just somebody to listen to you. I like that about women. All right. What makes you happy? Oh, I love these questions. <laughs> what makes me happy? You're going to laugh. Um, my happiest moments are like when I open my eyes and I don't have to get on an airplane. <laughs> and my dogs are all in my bed or around or on or around the bed. And I just don't have to go anywhere. And I don't have to get dressed up or comb my hair. And I don't have to leave the house. And if I wanted to, I could spend the whole day in bed reading and eating in bed and falling right back to sleep and having dreams. That's, to me, a very happy state. I, I would gladly spend 90% of my life in bed. <laughs> mm. 
It's true, because you know, like you can watch television and the programs, you know, once in a while you get something really good, but most of it's not very good. But when you go to sleep, the dreams are fabulous. And you're in it. What makes you sad? Oh, you know, I, I'm a big chiona. I'm a crybaby. Lots of things make me sad, so I don't know that I could just answer that. I think one of the things that makes me the saddest is um, uh, people in great positions of power that have an opportunity to make change in the world, because there's so much pain in the world. And there are so many people who have money or influence or know people, and they don't do a damn thing. You know, it really just kills me. Yeah. It's true. Which gets me to J-Lo. <laughs> now, I first want to say, if anybody knows her personally, please introduce me. Because I bet it is very hard being J-Lo. You know, I bet it is. We don't know. We don't walk in her Louis Vuitton shoes, you know? <laughs> but on the other hand, pobrecita, she's in her 20s. Remember what I told you about the 20s? Very confusing decade. And she could do so much with all that power that she has and all that visibility. She could do so much if she would stop chasing these guys and just focus a little bit and say, you know what, Louis Vuitton? What have you done for the Latino community lately? You know? She could do this. She could do it like that, easily, easily, easily. She could say, you know what, movie industry, how about if we did a performing art school in the barrio, you know, in my old neighborhood. There's so much that she could do. And maybe, maybe I'm like getting on her case and ragging on her right now, and maybe she's going to do that one day. But if you know Jayla, would you tell her this, please? You know? <laughs> I just feel so disappointed. You know, I try to explain this to my niece who's 19 and looks up to her. It's not that we don't all want to wear those fabulous shoes. I must admit they're rather cool. But, you know, if you're going to do that and be in such a visible place, you know, you know how much work would it take to say, you know, can we do this in the community? Uh, can we work towards creating more schools? Can you donate some money, please, to the public library? How much is that going to cost her? OK. That makes me very mad. And Madonna, too. OK. Would you like to talk about food? I'd love to talk about food. But um, what about food? What should we talk about food? Somebody asked me what was my favorite food, and I think food is like indicative of what class you are, you know? I'm staying at this really nice hotel, and I was all excited because there was a bag of Cracker Jack in the room, you know? All excited. And to me, you know, it, I bet Jayla would understand this. You know, when you're raised in a house where you don't have luxury food items, Cracker Jack is like caviar, you know? And that never goes away. You know, it doesn't go away. To me, still the food of choice is like, you know, if I have a glass of champagne, I want Cheetos. <laughs> you, know? And, you, know, that, you know, when we were little and we had a little bit of money, we would buy stuff like that because those were the luxury food items. You didn't have those in your home. I tried to explain this whole thing about food to my trainer because now I have a trainer. Now that I got older, you know, things started happening to your body. It'll happen to you. Yeah, and you'll start realizing you can't spend your whole 10 hours a day in front of a computer and not do something about it. And I'm also concerned about food because, like, the community that I come from, there's very high incidence of diabetes, uh, real high incident of illnesses, like my father with dialysis. And, and we're getting to epidemic portions, uh, proportions now where it's no longer people in their 60s and 70s who are getting dialysis, but people in their 30s and 40s. And that's happening, and that's going to affect everybody here because, you know, this is a community that that is a Latino community, and we are the largest minority. And so suddenly, we're going to have all of this. Uh, um, and they don't have health care. Most majority of working class people don't have health care, not all of them. And you're going to have problems where you're going to start seeing this epide in epidemic proportions in hospitals. So I'm concerned about food. I want to talk about food. Maybe I should write about food. You know, I think I want to talk about food because so many people blame Mexican cooking for weight gain. But how many overweight Mexicans do you see in Mexico? 
You know, it's really when we, the food has been translated over across the border and it merges with American foods that you get something else and that's what's making us gain all the weight. You know, uh, uh, not, we don't use the same vegetables or the same kinds of cooking oils. I don't know, I think I need to talk about, I think I need to write an essay about food. And it's all linked into uh, class. If you go to the neighborhoods that I grew up in, uh, the supermarkets have the worst food. How are you going to take care of your health if you can't get to uh, a fancier food store? And what if you don't have money for those fancier foods? You have to make do. You buy what, what stretches, you know, what's going to last a long time. And people are always mistaking like fast food for food that will fill them up that'll last, make them not be hungry for a long time. I think you know, even myself, as a woman who's educated in my 40s, I still used to buy things like uh, um, corn puffs and Cheetos and eat that for dinner, you know? Especially if you're writing, you can justify it by saying, oh, I gotta go back to my desk, and you have that in a Diet Coke. But you don't realize that you're not putting the best fuel inside you. Now, when I go on book tours, I try to make choices. And it doesn't mean that I don't like Cheetos and I don't eat Cheetos. I want you to know that I do. But you have to make choices. And I'm learning that from uh, becoming educated, from going to a trainer, from trying to think about working out, uh, doing things, just making educated choices now about food. But you don't want to hear about that. I'll write about that. We'll talk about food. And I need to, I need to think about all this. Um, what about book tours? What do you like about book tours? Well, I think the good thing about book tours is like the Cracker Jack in your room. That's the good thing. But the bad thing is the Cracker Jack in your room. Yeah. I would never buy that. It's there. I eat it. Uh, I think the good thing about book tours is I get to meet the public. I get to meet the people that uh, read my work. And How many writers have that luxury? of actually coming con into contact with their readers. How many writers have luxury of getting letters from their readers? And I do, so I think the book tours is good that I finally get to see the person who has found that note in a bottle, you know? And, and they'll come up to me and talk to me and give me a story back. That's the good part about the book tours. The bad part about book tours is you have to get on an airplane and you have to get up early and in my own life, I usually wake up at eh, 1, 1 p.m., something like that. Uh, I go to bed. Of course, I go to bed at 3.30 or 4. So, uh, yeah, so book tours are, are a little odd for me. I always feel jet-lagged. I always feel tired. And I like performing the stories, but I don't feel uh, I have the energy after doing the performances of spelling your name. That's really hard. Especially if your name is Arnulfo or something like that. It's very, very hard. So the spelling of the names at the end, I, 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 that's one of the hard, hard things for me to pay attention. I think I learned from Thich Nhat Hanh that if the more tired you are, the slower you should go. And sometimes when I'm really tired in a tour, because you think that a tour is just about doing this, and it's not. You're talking to uh, interviews. You're doing um, signings at bookstores. Sometimes you have radios. You've got to travel all across town. Then you come and do your performance. Then you sign, and then you have to pack to leave the next day. So it's a very long day, like a 12-hour day. And I think for myself, one of the, the difficult things for book tours is I don't have enough time to be quiet to be by myself. I don't have enough time to sit and just be in a cafe and watch people, you know. There isn't enough time. And I think everybody needs that. Everybody needs to have some time to be quiet and just hear the things that are floating inside your heart, even if they're silly things, you know, but just to allow them to be. I think people that meditate maybe do that with meditation. I think people that write probably do that by writing. And sometimes, you know, we need to write just by sitting down and looking around. We don't always have to be writing. We just need to be like this. This is writing, too. And when I'm on the tours, my head feels very hot. I don't have enough time to do those quiet things that I enjoy, like walking down the street and looking at a, a window that's filled with twine, you know, hardware stores, you know, really dumb things. But you, you need that.
What do you want to do before you die? What do you want to do before you die? What do you want to do before you die? Okay, first you. All right. Well, before I die, I'd like to take care of a couple of things. Like, um, I'd like my house to be taken care of by a foundation uh, and my papers. And I would like writers to live in my house, you know, because I'm, I actually own a house that's being paid for by my pen. That's pretty extraordinary. I never dreamed that I would own a house. Uh, I, I never dreamed that I would be speaking in front of this many people. Uh, I did dream that my name would be on the spine of a book, but I didn't dream that I'd actually have this kind of fame and this kind of attention. Uh, I feel as if I've been blessed because I'm on my path. I think everybody on the planet has some work that they're supposed to do. It doesn't mean you always do it, but there's some work that you're supposed to do. And when you are doing it, you get grace. You get that light, you know? You know how like when someone you love smiles at you and you smile back and you feel that little current in your heart? That's the light. And when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing on this planet, you feel that light. It's something big has nothing to do with you. It comes from some other source, and it comes. And I think that the house I live in is something that I'd like to leave so that other writers could have the wonderful fortune of being in a quiet space, uh, being in some place where you could think, uh, where you could be quiet and hear the things that are floating inside your heart. I would like my house and my papers in my property to always be available so that writers could live there. So that's one of my dreams, and I'd like to make that happen. I also have a writing workshop that is called Magondo. It's my own writing workshop. Uh, I don't teach it under the auspices of any institution. I do it on my own. Um, I pick up students across the country the way a coach picks up basketball players. Some people are people older than me. Some people are young writers. All of them are master's levels writing, writers. That means they have books out or, uh, or have uh, manuscripts or are about to come out with a book. So they're all at a master's level. And I'd like that workshop to continue after I'm dead because, you know, I think people don't know how to become a writer. I didn't know how to become a writer when I was growing up. And we need alternative institutions other than universities, especially now when people don't have money to go to universities. We need alternative situations where people can study with professional writers in an environment that is not going to destroy their spirit, in an environment where people are controlling their lower chakras, in an environment where writers are teaching you that art can change the world. And we never talked about that at the university, that what we write could make social change, that we could actually make some writing that could help somebody other than ourselves. And I'm looking for those writers, so those writers that I think who have uh, um, shown a commitment to community involvement, uh, who are working for social change in their writing. So that, I'd like to see my workshop, Macondo, I'd like to see that continue on, for it to be uh, in existence for a long time so that writers from many borders can come and intersect and come to San Antonio and continue writing. That's, that, of course, is me, the author, speaking. What about you, the person? I want to jump out of a cake. That's why nobody ever interviews you. But it's true, you know, I, I want to jump out of a cake, you know. I want to have a hat that's shaped like the top of a cake. Doesn't mean I want to be nude. I just want to jump out of a cake, you know. Don't you think that would be fun? You know? That's what I would like to do before I die. Now, I have a little bit of time left, and I haven't read a thing. So um, what would you like me to read? Well, why don't you read a poem? You know the one. I'm so glad you asked. Okay. All right. This is a kind of poem that uh, I could not have written if I was in my 20s. And uh, I'm so happy that, you know, I hope I don't turn out like Maria Felix or, you know, those, or the Hollywood women that keep getting plastic surgery, you know, every year. Pobrecitas, you know. 
I really hope I don't, because I'm so enjoying every age that I am. And the good thing about being a writer is, you know, when you look at the women writers you admire, uh, at least I do, they were 65 when they wrote their best books, you know? So I'm looking forward to that. And, and you know, even though parts of your body start doing funny things, it's all right. There's a kind of relief because, you know, you can go to a bar and people leave you alone. <laughs> you know? It's all right. You can actually talk to your girlfriend, you know? And, you know, I also have to mention that I have a partner now. I have a sweetie, you know. People ask about, you know, nobody's mother, nobody's wife. But my next book is going to say she is still nobody's mother and nobody's wife, but she lives in San Antonio with the love of her life. And it's so, I'm so happy because it takes so much time being single, you know. You're always sad and having those, remember those crying jags I told you about? Oh, always crying. And, you know, I just like having somebody around. I really do. It's so, I think one of the most wonderful things about having a partner is at the end of the day, you can talk to that person. And that's such a blessing. Those people who have partners and complain about the seat being up, I'm so happy the seat is up. You know what I mean? Somebody's in my house. I'm thrilled. This is for my partner. I'm going to dedicate this to my sweetie, my honey. And he's at home. And he's a filmmaker. He makes documentary film, films. I wrote this before I met him, but maybe I wrote it for him. You bring out the Mexican in me. You bring out the Mexican in me. The honker, thick, dark spiral. The core of a hard house. The tequila lagrimas on Saturday all through next weekend, Sunday. You are the one I'd let go the other loves for. Surrender my one woman house. Allow you red wine in bed, even with my vintage lace linens. Me for you. You bring out the Dolores del Rio in me. The Mexican spitfire. The raw navajas glint and passion in me. The raised cane and dance with the rooster-footed devil in me. The spangled sequin in me. The eagle and serpent in me. The mariachi trumpets of the blood in me. The Aztec love of war in me. The fierce obsidian of the tongue in me. The berrinchuda bien cabrona in me. The Pandora's curiosity in me, the pre-Columbian death and destruction in me, the rainforest disaster, nuclear threat in me, the fear of fascist in me. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You bring out the colonizer in me, the holocaust of desire in me, the Mexico City 85 earthquake in me, the Popocatepetl Iztaccíhuatl in me, the tidal wave of recession in me, the Agustin Lara hopeless romantic in me, the Barbacoa Taquitos on Sunday in me, the cover the mirrors with cloth in me, sweet twin, my wicked other, I am the memory that circles your bed nights, that tugs you taut as moon tugs ocean. I claim you all mine, arrogant as manifest destiny. I want to rattle and wrench you in two. I want to defile you and raise hell. I want to pull out the kitchen knives, dull and sharp, and whisk the air with crosses. Me sacas lo mexicana and me, like it or not, honey. You bring out the Uled Nail in me, the stand back white bitch in me, the switchblade in the boot in me, the Acapulco cliff diver in me, the Flecha Roja mountain disaster in me, the dengue fever in me, the alarma murderess in me. 
I could kill in the name of you and think it worth it. Brandish a fork and terrorize rivals, female and male, who loiter and look at you, languid in your light. Oh, I am evil. I am the filth goddess, La Solteratl. I am the swallower of sins, the lust goddess without guilt, the delicious debauchery. You bring out the primordial exquisiteness in me, the nasty obsession in me, the corporal and venial sin in me, the original transgression in me. Red ochre, yellow ochre, Indigo, cochineal, piñon, copa, sweet grass, myrrh. All you saints, blessed and terrible, Virgen de Guadalupe, Diosa, Cuatlicue, I invoke you. Quiero ser tuya, only yours, only you. Quiero amarte, atarte, amararte. Love the way a Mexican woman loves. Let me show you. Love the only way I know how. Thank you. We'll return for the rest of the event with Sandra Cisneros in a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about an event coming up with Joy Harjo on February 27th. The 23rd Poet Laureate of the United States and the first Native American to receive the honor, Harjo is a poet, memoirist, playwright, and the author of several children's books. A musician and performer as well, Harjo's work expands our culture and reminds us of the truth we can come to when paying attention to the world around us. Tickets are available now for both in-person and online attendance at lectures.org. And now, more from Sandra Cisneros. That was, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. I'll start off the questions while the ushers are gathering in the aisles. If you have a question, please pass it to the end of the aisle. Your writing and even your presentation tonight includes a great deal of dialogue and different voices. Have you ever considered writing a play? Actually, I, I've been performing my pieces as theater with um, actors. Uh, some of my pieces have been adapted for the stage, but um, more, most recently I've been doing performances, theater performances, with a band, uh, dancers, uh, actors. They don't perform the piece. I perform, and they come in as maybe, like if I'm reading the chapter about Tongolele, the dancer, then the dancer will come. Or there's a lot of songs in Caramelo. Instead of my singing, I'll have a professional singer come and sing a beautiful Agustin Lara Bolero, and the band plays, and then I come in and read the story with pauses for like the performers. So I've been doing lots of fundraisers. Unfortunately, I only do them in San Antonio, uh, or fortunately, because you know it's a one time only. If you miss it, you miss it, and it makes it uh, special because you know in San Antonio we always get such bad theater. You know, you get like seconds old things that come from you know New York. So it's nice that we have a venue a little theater in my neighborhood that does original work by original uh, San Antonio writers. And they've given me the space to experiment. And plus, you know, I, I have all these ideas. I love Busby Berkeley movies. You know, I'd love to do kind of like these musical numbers with girls, you know, tap dancing and, you know, but political. You know, maybe that'll be how I get the message about food. You know, maybe we could have these giant nachos dancing, you know. You know, I like stuff like that, but I think that they waste their time on Broadway doing frothy art that doesn't, well, I shouldn't say all of them, but a lot of them are just about making you feel good, and then you go home, and it's like eating french fries. You're, you're hungry an hour later. Uh, so I want to do fun stuff like that, but that you go home, and it changes your life, you know? 
So not kind of propaganda, but just funny stuff that makes you think. So, in the future. When you sit down to write, do you think and write in Spanish or English? Do you do it consciously or unconsciously? It depends on where I am. If I'm in Spain, then things come out in Spanish. If I'm in Mexico, it comes out in Mexican Spanish. You know, if I'm on the border, it comes out in English and Spanish. So it really depends on where I'm at. You know, I think if I was in Finland, I'd start writing in Finnish. You know, so <laughs> I'm very much. I listen to how people talk, and that just seeps into my my writing. So wherever you put me. Who are your favorite Latino authors? Are there any up-and-comers you'd like to recommend? Okay, uh, if you talk about Latin American, I would say, you know, like the old standbys for me are always Manuel Puy, Elena Poniatowska, Eduardo Galeano, Jorge Luis Borges, you know, the boom writers, uh, Angeles Mastreta, you know, uh, Elena Garro. But if you talk about Latin American writers in the U.S., uh, I love Denise Chavez, I love Elena Villarumontes, I think Cherie Moraga, you know, she's doing theater now, but I, I wish she would do some more uh, poetry and prose. Uh, Gloria Anzaldúa, these were writers that, you know, I, I, that stimulated me to write the books that I write. Uh, there's lots of up-and-coming writers coming out now. Uh, Erasmo Guerra and uh, uh, Carla Trujillo and Demetria Martinez and uh, Oscar Cáceres. Uh, there's, there's many, many, and um, some of them don't have books out, some do, uh, so they might not come to your attention right away, but I feel as if we're getting this whole new generation, younger generation, a lot of them from South Texas, that uh, I'm excited about. Some of them I know through my workshop, and I'm just waiting for them to you know, publish, or in some cases, like Denise Chavez, she's been around for a long time, but she hasn't made a national impact yet. And you know, these are writers I respect and admire. Um, many, many that I could think of. There'll be five more I'll think of afterwards, and I'll kill myself that I didn't mention. Luis Rodriguez, Martin Espada, excellent, excellent writers. I wish we would get people like Martin Espada, Luis Rodriguez, to be the poet laureates you know, of the United States. These are fabulous poets. These are people that are out there working with the homeless, working on gang prevention, working on advocacy with you know, all kinds of community issues, and you know about those poet laureates? I don't think they do very much, frankly, you know? <laughs> anyway. Should there be a separate Latino canon, or should the canon be expanded to include the best of Latino writing? Oh, well, I don't know what you mean by Latino canon, you know? I'm not real sure I understand that question. I mean, there is a Latino canon. It's not there should be or not, it just is just like there's a canon of women's literature and a canon of North American. But I, I think in one ways, it's good because uh, when I was a young writer, I didn't know there were other Latino US writers. I, did, I had no idea. And so it's nice if there's a, a niche so that we know where to find them, you know, especially if we're looking for them. Some writers really uh, have difficulties being placed in that niche, like Richard Rodriguez is, uh, objects. He really wants to be uh, known as a, a world writer. But, you know, just because you're a woman writer doesn't mean you're not a North American writer, doesn't mean you're not a global writer or a Buddhist writer or whatever. There's lots of categories, and, you know, I think sometimes it's important that they exist so that the community we write about can find us, and that's not, you know, that doesn't bother me. Are you close with your family? What do they think of your writing? And do they see themselves in your characters? You know, I say I'm close, but to tell you the truth, they haven't a clue who I am. And, but at the same token, I don't know who they are either. It's kind of funny, you know, you can say we're very close, but when I see them, we talk about, like my mom, we always, she always talks about pork chops. Yeah. <laughs> I bought some pork chops today. They're really good. You know, she always is talking about what she ate. And we never talk about anything that matters. And it's, it's sad, but true. They never talk to me about my writing. They might say that someone mentioned that, me, uh, someone they know mentioned my books to them. Uh, in the course of their work, they'll say a fellow employee wants the book signed. But they never come out and say, Oh, this is, we're so proud of you. It's very rare. I think I have one time that I remember a brother coming up to me and hugging me. Usually they tell me things like, clean the refrigerator, you know, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. 
or you know, the, the kind of banter that we have is, is, is way up here. We never talk from here. And it makes me feel lonely and sad that that happens. I don't know if that's true of everybody's family or just Mexicans. You know? I don't know. Uh, it breaks my heart because I feel as if I, I speak from my heart with my closest friends, and yet I go home and my family is, you know, they've got the television on. That's one of the reasons. They've got the television on, and you can never get a conversation in with the roar of the television. Could you tell us more about your writing process? Yeah. Uh, when I'm writing, uh, I don't look like this. This is the author's outfit, you know. The writer uh, wears her pajamas and maybe doesn't comb her hair and maybe hasn't changed her clothes in a couple of days. Maybe is wearing pajamas in two days and hasn't combed her hair in two days. And I generally, what I do is I wake up, as I said, about the middle of the day and I try to get to my desk in an hour from whenever I'm vertical. I just say, okay, you've got an hour. Otherwise, the whole day will go away. Um, I try not to talk to anybody on the days that I'm writing, because speaking takes a lot of energy. That's why when I'm on tour or talking to you or going to art openings, I'm not going to get any writing done. Uh, I try to go directly from my having breakfast up to, upstairs to my desk, and I turn the machine on around 1 o'clock, and it stays on till about 10. And that's my writing day for four days. So I put in 40 hours, but I put them in in four days. The reason why is because it usually takes me from 1 to 6 o'clock to start cooking. You know, between 1 and 6, I usually don't write anything good. And from 6 till 10, I'm rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. And on a good day, I write a page and a quarter. I'm a very, very slow writer. I don't write from left to right. I don't write from top to bottom. Uh, I, by that I mean I don't start at chapter one and end in chapter 44, and I don't start the big, from the beginning where you see the beginning of a chapter to the end. I just write little pieces, kind of like a filmmaker. I write the scenes that I see, and later on I line them up and put them together. Has winning accolades and awards like the MacArthur changed the polished author Sandra or the rough draft Sandra more, and how? Oh, what a question. Uh, the MacArthur, I think, uh, gave me latitude. It kind of gave me credibility. You know, like finally, Texas said our Sandra Cisneros instead of that Yankee Sandra Cisneros. You know, I was finally like taken in and, and accepted. But on the other hand, a lot of people also got very angry. It was like, why her, not me? And I had to understand that it was coming from their own unhappiness, you know? When people win awards, the people that are unhappy will, you know, say mean things. And you, you have to not take it personally, because frankly, all the awards that anyone ever gets are so arbitrary. You know, you can think even about the Nobel and the Pulitzer. Pe great people should have gotten them and went to the graves without getting them. Jorge Luis Borges never won the great prizes that he should have gotten. But that does not make him less of a writer, you know. And just because I've gotten an award doesn't make me a better writer than someone who has not won it. It really depends on the taste of the panel of judges that year. And uh, so you shouldn't let it go to your head. When I get those awards, I think, you know, what a blessing. I hope I spend this money responsibly, and I have to remember, you know, uh, other writers who haven't gotten it, they merit it too. I wish there were awards for all of them, and I, I hope I'm wise in how I spend it. But don't let it go to your head and think you're better. Please tell us about a time when you saw your writing make a social change. You know what? I'm so lucky. I, I keep getting those affirmations all the time. And especially now, at this time in my life, I meet students. I meet, uh, for example, I was in Chicago last week. I visited a school where uh, the teacher had studied my work at that school 12 years ago. I visited the school 12 years ago when she was a little girl in middle school, and now she's the teacher at the grade school where I had visited, and I visited again 12 years later. So to see that kind of generations, you know, coming back and reusing the book now with her students, that's thrilling. Uh, I meet people who are now in college or are now professionals, and they read my work when I was, when they were in high school, when they were in grade school, and they give me these heartbreaking testimonials about how reading House on Manga Street allowed them the courage to go on and go to college 
and now they're professionals. So I get these all the time, not just in writing, but in the um, signings. So you know, my fans are not the kind of fans that are destructive or mean. They're the kinds that hug you. Get lots of hugs. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm very blessed. What do you most want to still write in your lifetime? Oh, that's a good question. Um, right now, I would like to do a teacher's book because I feel like my work is used a lot by teachers and I have very little time to go to every classroom that invites me. So I'd like to write a book about how I teach writing, to share it with teachers and for young writers. Uh, I'd, like to, uh, I'd like to write a book on erotica because I think uh, books that I see on erotica mm, fall short of what I'm looking for. Because I think the erotic is very spiritual. And I don't see the spiritual in erotica. So I'd like to write from that perspective. I want to do a book of vignettes. Uh, right now, I'd like to do um, some children's books, but they're kind of a back burner. I'd like to do some children's books based on my dogs. I have lots of dogs. And they're very destructive. <laughs> so I thought that if I wrote about my dogs, that, I, that would be a way of putting them to work. You know, <laughs> they could pay for all their destruction, but they're also very wonderful, and they they make my life so rich. And I just want to share some of the things. You know, Colette wrote about her dogs. I haven't written about my dogs, so I thought it would be a way for me to force me to write about uh, one of the great blessings, and that's knowing my dogs, having them in my life. And they're so great when you're in a funk and depressed. You know, they're just they're filled with that light that I was talking about. You know, that light when someone who loves you, you know, smiles at you. They're always sending you that light, and that's God. So you, you got to love them. Um, there's so many things I want to do. I don't know what I want to do in 20 years. I just know that these are the projects that I have for the next couple of years. And I already told you about my house and the foundation and my writer's workshop. But I hope I never uh, run out of ideas. I seem to have more ideas than I have time. Um, those are some of my plans for right now. Good. Which of your books was the most fun to write? My books aren't fun to write. <laughs> Finishing them is fun. Reading and performing them for you, that's fun. But writing them is not fun. Um, I'm sorry, it's work. You know, it, to me, uh, writing a book is like sewing a, a bunch of dresses for a wedding. That's not fun. <laughs> Going to the wedding and seeing everybody wearing the, your dresses, that's fun. But actually being there every day sweating with the cloth and looking at the dates and trying to hurry and get the stuff done, that's work. Yeah, it's work. And you know, especially if you sew things by hand, and my, lots of my work is handwork. I do lots of fine bead work. Takes a long time. Uh, so it's not fun when you're doing this. When you look at it and it's done, and you know, that's fun. Thank you very much. It was an honor to host Sandra Cisneros in 2003 and to bring her back on the podcast today. If you enjoyed listening, we welcome you to join us in person or online for our season featuring writers like Joy Harjo, Luis Alberto Urea, Gabriel Zevin, and Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Tickets are available at lectures.org. Thank you to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community, and thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air. <laughs>